singing the songs of Christmas, of Advent, may feel very nostalgic. And that's good. We remember what God has done for us. But it can't stop there. We now live looking forward to something as well. So we'll have our first reading from Isaiah. Good morning, everyone. So our first reading is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 2, and verses 1 to 5. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountains of the Lord's temple will be established at the highest of the mountain. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways, so that we may walk in his path. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he will be judged between the nation, and he will settle dispute for many people. They will beat their sword into plowshares, and the spear into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendant of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The second reading is taken from the book of Romans, chapter 13, and verses 11 through 14. And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Gospel reading today is found in Matthew chapter 24. Please stand for the reading of the Gospel. Matthew chapter 24, starting in verse 36. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill, one will be taken and the other left. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, 
he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Okay. Now you've read those passages, everyone's just like, ooh, this is going to be a fun sermon. Okay, um, so I begin. Because these passages are not what I feel Adventy wants to be. You know, I want Advent. I want, you know, Christmas music. I want presents. I want fun, joviality, um, peace among men. Um, but here we have a passage talking about Advent, but, you know, not the Advent that most of us are thinking of. Here we have a story about an Advent, the Advent, the final Advent, the second coming of Jesus. And so in that sort of disappointment, if I'm going to be honest, um, I, bring up, uh, I bring up a song to start us off um, because I find it uh, hilarious. It's a song that we all listen to at Christmas time, and we're like, ooh, Christmas, yay. But then when we hear the words, it's not so great. And I'm referring to Santa is coming to town. Do you guys know that song? Here are some of the words. You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. It gets scarier. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. So be good, for goodness sake. The kids in Girl and Boyland, I mean, who came up with this song, right? The kids in Girl and Boyland will have a jubilee. They're going to build a toy land all around the Christmas tree. So you better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. And so there at Christmas time, we um, listen to this song. I don't sing it very much, but I listen to it in fear and trembling. Um, and we all freak out because all of a sudden this image of comfortable Santa, and I know I look like him, um, but I'm not. Um, comfortable Santa with his nice beard um, and his belly. Um, one of the <laughs> funniest moments of my life is when I went to actually be Santa at the YMCA here in Jerusalem. Um, and they had a sort of like a fake belly, and I, I didn't need it. Um, um, this image of comfort and fun, um, and all of a sudden we listen to the song, and it sounds like he's a stalker um, who's going to kidnap our children and take them to girl and boyland. So our passage today is difficult. Um, it sort of meets us in a way where we wanted to have something joyous and encouraging, and here we have this, this serious message of judgment and being prepared. And so today, we're going to learn about three different things. We're going to talk about God's call to be ready, how to get ready, and what are we getting ready for, right? So God's call to be ready, how to get ready, and what we are getting ready for. The first one, God's call to be ready. Um, here in our passage, we have three different ways that Jesus is talking about getting ready or like the fact, the reason we need to get ready. The first one is 
Noah. Um, and so I'll just uh, briefly give it a quick reread. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So in the Noah section, we have people living regular life. All right? So there are ways in which regular life, the day-to-day doing, getting stuff done and doing things um, can actually become a distraction. It can keep us away from getting ready. It can keep us away of, and I'm going to sort of translate this, this getting ready, of bringing the sacred into our life. It, it keeps it away because we just get used to things. And one of my favorite moments when I think I learned this most directly was in C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters. Um, If you're not aware of that book, um, it's a wonderful book. It's a book um, uh, that C.S. Lewis wrote and described letters from a senior devil to a minor devil, telling the minor devil how to make sure that his patient, okay, the person that he was supposed to tempt and everything, make sure that he went to hell, right? That's the book. Um, and in this letter, the senior devil um, is writing to his, um, his cousin, I think it's his nephew, um, and telling him um, what he needs to do. And at the beginning of the book, before his, pa- his, his particular uh, patient becomes a Christian, he's telling him how to keep him away from those thoughts. And he's reminding him of one day when he was um, distracting one of his patients. And he said, it was easy. He started to think of deep things there in the library. He was reading, thoughts were coming to him, but then I reminded him that he was hungry. I get him out, and this is what C.S. Lewis writes. And once he was in the street, the battle was won. I showed him a newsboy shouting for the midday paper, a number 73 bus going past, and before he reached the bottom of the steps, I had got him into an unalterable conviction that whatever odd ideas might come into a man's head when he was shut up alone with his books, a healthy dose of real life, by which he meant the bus and the newsboy, was enough to show him that all that sort of thing just couldn't be true. That by walking out, seeing the bus, seeing the newsboy, seeing a regular life go by, ha, all this other stuff, it couldn't possibly be true. Real life, you know, papers and buses, these are the things that are real, and that's what I'm going to believe in. The regular day-to-day stuff is necessary. But if we don't bring God into our day, if we don't bring him and the meaning of what we're doing into our day to day, it can not only fall into this neutral zone away from God, but then actually leads us further away into darkness. And so here in our first section, Jesus is warning and he's saying, don't do it. Don't let the day, don't be like those people who just, you know, they were eating and drinking and giving away in marriage and life was going on. And then all of a sudden the flood comes. Don't let it be that kind of surprise to you. Be waiting for it. Be prepared for it. Be looking to it by bringing the sacred into your everyday life. The second section is about um, the men, uh, the, sorry, the women working out in the, 
Is it, no, the men working in the field and the ladies in the mill. And so here, we sort of see how our work, again, our, reg our career can get in the way. And I think all of us can be very familiar with how career can get in the way. Even, you wouldn't believe it, the career of people in ministry can get in the way of following the Lord. Um, because in every place that we find career and we find work, we find busy work. Yeah, we can all be about doing busy things and never actually focusing in on, and here's the trick, why I'm doing what I'm doing. Why am I here? Why am I working at a store? Why am I working in this company? Why, what is the purpose? What is our goal? What are we striving for? Yeah? And we can forget that and just, oh, I've got 30 emails to answer. I've got this, I've got that. And we abandon it all. Because you see, the vision of the New Testament um, isn't a New Testament of isn't a, isn't a vision of just, um, okay, well, I've got to just survive this, believe in Jesus, and then I'm going to escape this world. The vision of the New Testament actually talks of a new heavens and a new earth. The final position of all of humanity that stays with God is not going to be a disconnected heaven somewhere else, but it is actually going to be here. This planet, remade, renewed by God. And so as we work for this world and we work in this world, we look forward to this place being as it should be. And so we build the kingdom of God wherever that might be and in whatever job that we're doing. And so we can again find the sacred and the good in every single place that we are, no matter where that may be. Thirdly, we have the picture of the master of the house. And there we see a call to make sure that our life, our work, and the people that are in it are taken as our responsibility. This section is about ownership. Do you own what you have been given? Now, <clears throat> you see me as a man of 43, but I actually married when I was 20 years old. I got married when I was 20 and I was a dad at 22. And people often made the joke, ha, kids with kids, right? And they weren't far wrong. I often behaved like a kid and I loved my children. I loved every single one of them. Um, and I love them still to this day. But when I had the kids in my hands, I loved them. When I was at home, I cared for them. But when I was away, I found reasons to be away. And I would distract myself and, I, uh, and I, would, I would say, oh, I can't be a dad right now, I've got to study. I, I can't be a dad right now, I've got work to do. And my wife, God bless her, um, endured this for about three to four years. And then the person who turned me around wasn't actually my beautiful wife, Adele. She's just so patient with me, it's unbelievable. But it was my boss, my supervisor. Um, I started working, I work with a group called Jews for Jesus, it's a missionary, a mission work, and I worked with Jews for Jesus in New York City, and my boss was a single middle-aged lady, and she looked at me and she said, you well, do you actually know how much you work? And I was like, no, I just make sure that I get things done, and so she forced me to write down every single hour that I was away from the home and I was working. Right? And all of a sudden I realized I was away from home for 70 hours a week. 70 hours a week. And she was like, 
that's just not enough. And she sat me down and she made me write down all my work and she made me plan. She taught me the great line that if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. Um, uh, and she made me plan out my life and use a calendar and all of a sudden I started going home. And I was home so much more. I had so much free time, it was shocking. And after about a couple of months of this, I um, finally got a present from my wife. And the present was this fridge magnet, right? It's funny how the silliest, cheapest presents can sometimes become the most valuable. Um, I got this fridge magnet and it said, anyone can be a father, but it takes someone special to be a daddy. And I was like, dang, you know? And this may sound like, you know, all my problems were solved by a calendar um, and just like figuring life out. But it wasn't, it was hard. And lots of tears were involved because growing up is difficult. Um, tears were involved and I spent a lot of time trying to make myself feel better before I actually tried to be better. Um, and that's what brings us to the next, the next section, which is how to get ready. So we talked about the call to be ready, but now it's how do we get ready? Um, like I said, it's difficult and it's hard. And as you can imagine, it doesn't involve just going to get better lessons or self-improvement classes. Um, enlightenment, lo and behold, um, doesn't work. Um, you can't just teach people to be better. Um, they actually have to go through things, which is why some of our favorite stories and best movies involve, in the middle there, our hero, our protagonist, suffering and going through a difficult time and trial. And eventually, the character arc completes, the quest is over, he, you know, the guy gets the girl or the girl gets the guy, and the bad guy, whoever it is, is defeated in the end. And we're like, yeah, but... He had to go through that difficult moment in the beginning to get there. The process of change, as you guys know, and by God's grace, we have a liturgy that reminds us every week, the process of change is called repentance um, in the Christian faith. Um, and that term does need explanation because it's not just suffering, contrition, and change. Um, contrition being, I feel bad. Um, it's not just, um, not just that that gets us through it. It's something... A, a lot more than that. Um, and I'm going to give you the, a story from um, another minister's life. He was a pastor in Virginia, and he had this couple. And the couple would show up um, every couple of weeks, and they would sit with him because their marriage was going under great strain. And the reason it was under great strain is because the gentleman was being verbally abusive. Eventually, after years of this, she leaves him. And the moment she leaves him, he comes into the pastor's office and he's crying and he's weeping and I realize it was all me and I'm so sorry. And eventually um, his wife agrees to come and they sit down and he admits it all and confesses it all and the pastor hears that and she's like, you know what? You've never said that before. Let's try again. And they get back together and it's okay for about six months. And then he goes back to doing exactly what he used to do. And she leaves him and she leaves him for good. What happened? He confessed. He was sorry. There was weeping. There was crying, right? Which in our highly psychologized world, we think weeping and crying means that, okay, it's real. Um, but no, 
Because what he was upset about, what he was confessing, what he was sorry for, wasn't the sin. It was the consequences of the sin. He was upset because he didn't want to have to be the guy whose wife left him. And that's what freaked him out. That's what made him worried and concerned. And so he wanted to make sure that that wouldn't happen. And so he tried and he gritted his teeth and he tried to force himself to change. But what he never confessed was the reality that he enjoyed power and he liked getting power by belittling others. That was the sin he was unwilling to face. That's what he didn't want to look at. And so he went back to exactly what he was doing. The reason we meet tons of people who never change or grow is because they aren't actually dealing with the heart issue, with the idol that lies at the center of what we're doing. And they're not ready to die. Romans puts it this way, let us lay aside the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. So when the darkness comes into our lives and we think we're about to return to our old ways, um, here are three things that I think will help us put on the armor of light. The first one is this. You need to get people into your life. You need to have people in your life who are willing and open and going to say, bro, dude, sister, friend, you got to stop doing that. We have to have people who can point things out into our life, point out things in our life. Otherwise, we're never going to learn. We certainly can't see them. The mirror is not helping. We have to have people in our lives who can say those things. A knight cannot don his armor by himself. He needs a fellow knight or a squire or someone who's going to help it. You can't get all the latches and you can't see all the chinks by yourself. You need people in your life who are going to point those things out. That's number one. Number two, you have to convict yourself with joy. You have to convict yourself with joy and not just beat yourself up, right? All of us are really good, especially in this day and age, at beating ourselves up. We are amazing. We are like, I mean, I'm a 1990s kid. Street Fighter 2 video game, we know how to take ourselves down. We can one-shot ourselves really easily. But that's not the way that we're going to change. We have to convict ourselves with joy. We have to let God reach in and bring the light to change us. And how are we going to do that? By looking to him. This is what a prayer might sound like. Oh Lord, when I fall into anxiety and fearfulness, I remember that you faced the most astonishing changes for me. You were torn so bravely for me so I could be utterly loved and eternally safe. And the more I thank you for that, the more I find myself being calm because I don't have to prove myself anymore and you give me courage. So what I'm doing there is I'm saying, I'm afraid, that's not good, fear is bad, right? I'm afraid, I'm anxious, but Lord, you were afraid and you were anxious and you went through that for me. And when I think of all the fear and the anxiety and the trial that he went through on my behalf, that love and that joy convicts me, but at the same time gives me peace because I know he's with me every step of the way. Oh Lord, when I fall into coldness and irritability with people, I remember this, that in the Garden of Gethsemane, just before you died, you were so gentle and affirming when we fell, to sleep on, we fell asleep on you. On the cross, you were giving yourself to people who had abandoned you and mocked you 
And the more I thank and rejoice you for what you did, the more it melts the hardness of my heart. Those are the kinds of prayers, brothers and sisters, that will help you not only confess and recognize, but at the same time, end in joy, end in thankfulness, end in the gospel. Because if we don't end our confession and conviction in him and in that joy and in that love, we fall right back into the darkness that's waiting for us. Right back into what God was saying to to Cain and Abel. The sin crouching, waiting to come and get us. Don't fall back into the darkness. When you confess, confess to him and to what he has done for you. Grace must be the location where condemnation strikes or you will fall back. And he must be your love. He must be your home. Thirdly, right? So we need people and we need to confess, yeah, into joy. But thirdly, we still need to keep sin serious. Because what we all do, and I do this every single time, right? What we all do daily is we say, well, Jesus has come. He has forgiven my sin. So it's no biggie right? It's not, a, it's not an issue, right? Because he's going to confess everything's going to be fine. And instead of finding the joy in my confession, I just make everything less important, right? I become a little bit of a Christian relativist, right? I let it all go. But we can't do it. And that's why these metaphors of darkness, gnashing of teeth, and floods are used in our passage because it really, really is serious. Sin is so serious, in fact, that God took on flesh to come and die for us. That's how serious it is. So don't trivialize it. Don't be afraid to look at the seriousness of your sin. For even greater than your sin is the love and the blood spilled on your behalf. And so, we're putting all this, this effort in. God has put all this effort in to bring us to this place. But we've only just hinted at what it's all about. What is it all for? What is the direction of all this stuff? Now, as I said, our passage doesn't really correlate with our sort of regular view of, of Advent and Christmas. We want fluffy snow and we want peace among men. And Jesus is... Jesus is Return seems to inspire fear in our passage. And yet I hope that as we think about the way he changes our hearts by his death and resurrection in the past, we might experience his return differently too. Because he's not returning to a middle-class living room with fire a-crackling and presence beneath the tree. Jesus was returning to this world. He's returning to a world where children so closed with their teeth A world where women are sold in shop windows. A world where men still throw spears and still use swords. Jesus is coming to bring judgment and salvation to this world, as he did for Noah's family. So what what we're waiting for is salvation, judgment, and then restoration from all the suffering that we see in this world. All the suffering, brothers and sisters. Now, I believe that when we actually look at what he's going to do, it's something much more wonderful than we can possibly ever imagine. And I often use this illustration to make it true. Um, Because I believe he's going to take that suffering and use that suffering to create more joy. 
Let me give you an example. Um, I've suffered from anxiety, and one of the things that can happen when you suffer from anxiety is nightmares, all right? Now, I've had a nightmare, a really vivid, really realistic nightmare, where all my family were dead, and I was seeing their dead bodies in my, in my nightmare, and I was shocked. I was overwhelmed, and then I woke up, and when I woke up, it was like I looked next to me and I saw my wife Adele and it's like I got her back from the dead, right? And I remember, and I really didn't care. It was like three o'clock in the morning. I grabbed her and I hugged her, right? I couldn't care less if she was going to be bothered by being woken up. I hugged her. I kissed her. I'm like, babe, I love you so much, okay? And then, you know, all of a sudden realizing my kids are alive. This is amazing. And the fear and the terror that I experienced in my dream augmented and created the joy and the love that I experienced when I woke up and changed my whole day because I was so grateful to have them because of what I had experienced. Brothers and sisters, that is what God is going to do in the world to come. He is going to take every evil, every injustice, every moment of suffering, and he is going to flip it and turn it into joy, not as a compensation, not like, oh, I had a really difficult life and so God bless, oh, well, here's heaven. I hope it makes you feel better. No, he is going to take everything that you have suffered in this life and use that to create the joy that you are going to experience in the world to come. He will make evil serve the joy in heaven. As a poet and a lover of fantasy literature, and I want you to notice, I really restrained myself. There was no fantasy literature in the whole sermon up until this point, but I couldn't resist. J.R.R. Tolkien was a man who knew suffering. His father died when he was four years old. His mother died when he was 12, and he lost his friends in the trenches of World War I. And yet, at the end of Lord of the Rings, he writes this beautiful passage as the soldiers rejoice at the end of winning their battle against Sauron. And it says this, and all the host laughed and wept. And in the midst of their merriment and tears, the clear voice of the minstrel rose like silver and gold and all men were hushed. And he sang to them, now in the elven tongue, now in the speech of the West, until their hearts wounded with sweet words, overflowed, and their joy was like swords. And they passed in thought out to regions where pain and delight flow together, and tears are the very wine of blessedness. And tears are the very wine of blessedness. Brothers and sisters, be ready. Wake up. Jesus is coming. Everything will change in your life today and forevermore. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.